Welcome to Circulation on the Run, your weekly podcast summary and backstage pass to the journal and its editors. We're your co-hosts. I'm Dr. Carolyn Lam, Associate Editor from the National Heart Center and Duke National University of Singapore. And I'm Dr. Greg Hunley, Associate Editor, Director of the Poly Heart Center at VCU Health in Richmond, Virginia. Craig, I love today's featured article. It's all about heart failure with mildly reduced and preserved ejection fraction, talking about device therapy and the response to therapeutic atrial shunt device. Now, this is a very interesting discussion of how specifically selecting patients based on latent pulmonary vascular disease may hold some answers, but we're going to keep everyone hanging here. You've got to got to listen to the discussion. But first, we'd like to tell you about some of the papers in today's issue. And I think, Greg, you've got one to start us with, right? Absolutely, Carolyn. Thank you so much. Well, this first paper comes from Dr. Elliot Peister from the University of Pennsylvania. And Carolyn, the aim of this study was to leverage computational methods for analyzing digital pathology images from routine endomyocardial biopsies to develop a precision medicine tool for predicting cardiac allograft vasculopathy years before overt clinical presentation. Ooh, interesting. Again, precision tools. So what did they find? Right, Carolyn. So there was a clinical predictive model that achieved modest performance on the independent test set with area under the receiver operating curve of 0.7. But interestingly, a histopath predictive model for predicting cardiac allograft rejection achieved good performance with an area under the receiver operating curve of 0.8. Most importantly, however, a model incorporating both clinical and histopathologic features achieved excellent predictive performance with an area under the receiver operating curve of 0.93. So, in summary, Carolyn, these authors found that prediction of future cardiac allograft vasculopathy development is greatly improved by incorporation of computationally extracted histologic features. Their results suggest morphologic details contained within regularly obtained biopsy tissue have the potential to enhance precision and personalization of treatment plans for post-heart transplant patients. Oh, that's cool. Makes so much sense, but yet so novel. Thanks. Well, for the paper I want to talk about, we are going to talk about dapagliflozin. Now, we know the SGLT2 inhibitor dapagliflozin improved heart failure and kidney outcomes in patients with type 2 diabetes with or at high risk for cardiovascular disease in the declared to me 58 trial. In the current paper, authors led by Dr. Wiviet from the Timmy study group aimed to analyze the efficacy and safety of dapagliflozin stratified according to baseline systolic blood pressure. Ah, so an interesting question since SGLT2 inhibitors are known to reduce blood pressure. And given the concerns regarding the safety of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with low to normal systolic blood pressure. So Carolyn, what did they find? Mm, nicely put, Greg. So in patients with type 2 diabetes with or at high risk 
of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, dapagliflozin reduced the risk for heart failure hospitalizations and renal outcomes regardless of baseline systolic blood pressure, with no difference in benefit for reduction in heart failure or renal outcomes among patients with blood pressure from the normal range all the way to severe hypertension. Moreover, there appeared to be no difference in adverse events of volume depletion, acute kidney injury, or amputations across the levels of baseline blood pressure. So these results indicate that dapagliflozin provides important cardiorenal benefits in patients with type 2 diabetes at high risk, the independent of baseline blood pressure. Oh, very nice, Carolyn. Well, my next paper comes to us from the world of preclinical science, and it's from Professor Jeffrey Taubin and colleagues at Le Bonheur Children's Hospital. So Carolyn, as we know, arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy is an inherited genetic disorder of desmosomal dysfunction, and placophilin 2 has been reported to be the most common disease-causing gene when mutation is positive. Now, in the early concealed phase, the arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy heart is at high risk of sudden cardiac death before cardiac remodeling occurs due to mistargeted ion channels and altered calcium handling. However, the results of pathogenic placophilin 2 variants on myocyte contraction in arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy pathogenesis really remains unknown. So Carolyn, these authors studied the outcomes of a human truncating variant of placophilin 2 on myocyte contraction using a novel knock-in mouse model as well as evaluation of human subjects. Oh, interesting. So what were the results from this placophilin 2 knock-in mouse model? Right, Carolyn. So serial echocardiography of placophilin 2 heterozygous mice revealed progressive failure of the right ventricle, but not the left ventricle in animals older than three months of age. Now, next, adrenergic stimulation enhanced the susceptibility of placophilin 2 heterozygous hearts to tachyarrhythmia and sudden cardiac death. Contractility assessment of isolated myocytes demonstrated progressively reduced placophilin 2 heterozygous RV cardiomyocyte function consistent with right ventricular failure measured by echocardiography. And then next, Western blotting of placophilin 2 right ventricular homogenates revealed a 40% decrease in actin. In contrast, placophilin 2 heterozygous left ventricular myocytes had normal contraction and actin expression. And finally, Carolyn, Western blotting of cardiac biopsies revealed actin expression was 40% decreased in the right ventricles of end-stage arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy patients. So, in conclusion, Carolyn, during the early concealed phase of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, reduced actin expression drives loss of RV myocyte contraction, and that contributes to progressive RV dysfunction. Wow, thanks, Greg. Well, also in today's issue, there's an exchange of letters among doctors Whitman, Ibrahim, and Lofgren regarding physics at the heart of the matter, referring to the article anterior lateral versus anterior posterior electrode position for cardioverting atrial fibrillation. Right, Carolyn, and also in the mailbag, there's an on my mind piece from Professor Tachtmeyer 
entitled The 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics, The Spotlight on Cardiac Metabolism. Well, how about we get on to that feature article and learn a little bit more about atrial shunts and how they may be helpful in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Ooh, can't wait. Well, listeners, we have a very interesting feature discussion today related to hemodynamics pertaining to intraatrial shunt devices in those with and without pulmonary hypertension. And we have, gosh, a repertoire of speakers today. We have Dr. Sanjeev Shah from Northwestern University in Chicago, Dr. Evangelos Michalikas from Edmonton, Alberta, and our own associate editor, Dr. Justin Ezekowicz, also from Edmonton, Alberta. Well, Sanjeev, we're gonna start with you. Describe for us some of the background pertaining to your study, and what was the hypothesis that you wanted to address? Great, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me today. Well, the background of our study is that it was a subgroup analysis or a secondary analysis of the reduced LAP-HF2 trial. Now, this trial has been in the making for over 12 years, almost 13 years. It started out as an idea that was uh, David Selemeyers. David is a pediatric cardiologist in Australia who had this idea that, you know, in mitral stenosis patients, it's well known that if there's a concomitant secundum ASD, a congenital secundum ASD, these patients with mitral stenosis do better. They have a way to unload the left atrium and distribute that blood to the systemic veins and the right atrium, the right side of the heart. And so could this be helpful in quote, diastolic heart failure or HEFPEF? And so I started working with him about 12 years ago. This started out as a concept. It was studied in animal models and then in humans, in open label studies, and then in a first randomized controlled trial where we showed that an intraatrial shunt device, an iatrogenic ASD, so to speak, put in humans with heart failure with preserved EF results in a lowering of exercise pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. And so based on that data, we designed a pivotal trial, a phase three trial, the largest trial of its kind of heart failure with preserved and mildly reduced ejection fraction to see if an intraatrial shunt device would improve outcomes. And we published that trial earlier this year in The Lancet. Unfortunately, it was a totally neutral trial. And when you have a neutral trial in any condition, but as we see often in HEFPEF, the question is, was it neutral overall, or was there a subgroup that benefited? And what we found in that trial was that there were three predefined subgroups that came out that seemed like there was a difference. First, there was a sex difference. Women did better, men did worse with the device. Then there was right atrial volume. Those with bigger right atrial volumes did worse. If you had a smaller right atrial volume, you did better. But the most significant interaction and subgroup was exercise pulmonary artery systolic pressure. If the pulmonary artery systolic pressure was greater than 70 at 20 watts of exercise, so just with a little bit of exercise, those patients did worse. And if PA pressure stayed low, the patients did better. And so we sought to further explore this to say, okay, what's exactly going on? in a post-hoc analysis, what's going on with the pulmonary vasculature during exercise, and how does that differentiate how patients potentially respond to the device? And that's what we hope to figure out. We hypothesize that if exercise pulmonary vascular resistance is lower, then the shunt can actually work and blood can flow from the left to the right into the lungs and the right heart doesn't get too overloaded. And we know that the 
normal response of the pulmonary vasculature is to vasodilate with exercise. And so if patients had retained that response, the ability to do that, that they may benefit. And so we sought to figure that out with this subgroup analysis. Sanjeev, it sounds like a really elegant, well thought out hypothesis. So what was your study design and describe your study population? Yeah, this was a randomized controlled trial. And so this was 626 patients enrolled at 89 centers across the world. And it was really heart failure with mildly reduced, so an EF of greater than 40 or preserved EF, and 93% of them had FPEF. And what was unique about this trial is that we, this is the first trial really, that confirmed that these patients actually had heart failure with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction. You know, most trials say, well, you have to have an elevated BNP and you have to have some sign of structural heart disease and maybe a history of heart failure hospitalization. In this trial, every single patient had to undergo rigorous, non-invasive echocardiography. And then on top of that, they had to undergo exercise invasive hemodynamic testing. And, you know, people thought that it wasn't possible for 626 patients, but we did it. And every single patient had to have an exercise pulmonary capillary wedge pressure greater than or equal to 25. And so this really was, this really was half pet. So it's a randomized trial. And then Beyond that, we did a subgroup analysis. So we looked on various subgroups, um, focusing on exercise PBR, and we really looked to see the effect on three outcomes. Number one, a hierarchical endpoint, a combination of cardiovascular death, ischemic non-fatal stroke, recurrent heart failure hospitalizations, and the KCCQ. And then the other two outcomes were just the individual recurrent heart failure hospitalizations and the KCCQ. We looked at all of these and tried to figure out if there are certain subgroups that benefit. Great detail. So Sanjeev, what did you find? Well, we found that there's this group of patients that during exercise, the pulmonary vascular resistance at peak exercise stays above 1.74 wood units. Now that seems like an arbitrary number, but in fact, in older individuals that are healthy, when you exercise them, the PVR upper limit, the exercise PVR upper limit is about 1.8. So we're right about the upper limit of where the PVR should be. And if it was above that, the patients actually did worse with the shunt device. They had a lot more heart failure hospitalizations. Their KCCQ got worse, didn't benefit. And if they were below that threshold, meaning they were you know, sort of compliant pulmonary vasculature and it stayed compliant, or they vasodilated effectively with exercise, then they benefited from the device. And what we call this concept of exercise-induced pulmonary vasoconstriction or inability to vasodilate is latent pulmonary vascular disease. And so if you have that latent pulmonary vascular disease, your win ratio is 0.6. That means you do worse. And if you don't have this pulmonary, this latent pulmonary vascular disease, your win ratio is 1.31. And that means you do better with the device. And we saw very similar findings with the KCCQ. We saw similar findings with the recurrent heart failure hospitalizations. And the final thing is we found that we looked at various other subgroups and it turned out that if there was no latent pulmonary vascular disease and no history of pacemaker, which we found was kind of um, associated with sex and right atrial volume, those patients were about 50% of the group actually did the best. And that was what we call the responder subgroup. Thank you, Sanjeev. Well, listeners, we're going to turn now to our associate editor, Justin Izikowitz. And Justin, you have many papers come across your desk. What attracted you to this particular manuscript? So, Greg, this was this paper kind of stood out for a number of different reasons. And Sanjeev, you're to be congratulated for a variety of reasons, but the Number one is pursuing the data 
from a, a neutral trial overall to understand who might benefit and who might be harmed from a, a pretty novel device and way to treat patients in, in such a scale that's not been done like this before. So it stands out by just the, the magnitude of number of right heart catheterizations, number of patients enrolled, number of procedures done, and all of those things really lead to us to be able to understand the area much better than I think we can in, in a human population. Where this sits with other devices that are very similar, it's hard to really know if all devices are going to be the same or different, but your population is quite unique is that they're not all end stage, but they're sick enough to get into your trial. So there's this population we treat actively. And I, I wondered if you could touch on that continuous nature. And so for readers, there's this beautiful figure which shows the continuous nature of exercise PVR. And I wonder if you could touch on that. Is this mid-group the, the group that we should target for our future therapies like this, or is this the just needs further study? Well, I think it needs further study. I mean, I think the listeners should be aware that this is a post-hoc analysis. You know, we did pre-specify exercise PA pressure. This is one trial, but it makes a lot of sense pathophysiologically, you know, what we're doing here is we're shunting this excessive LA, overloaded LA, we're, we're shunting the blood from the LA to the RA and into the pulmonary vasculature. Well, if that pulmonary vasculature can't accept that increased flow, the patient's not going to do well. And how can we simulate that? Well, we can simulate it with exercise. As the patient's pedaling on the bike on the cath lab table, there's increasing blood flow to the pulmonary vasculature, and we're seeing what happens with the pulmonary vasculature. Does it vasodilate? Does it not? And so, you know, I think that's why we were excited about this finding. I do think that there are at least seven other companies making shunt devices, intratrial shunt devices or therapies. And I do think they need to pay attention to this and really look at this. Not all trials are doing exercise in basic hemodynamic dynamics. That needs to be done, I think. So it'll be really interesting to see. Now, one thing I will say is that, you know, this, and, you know, I've written about this. This is a really interesting trial because the BNPs were lower. And so you would think, okay, these are patients that are less sick. And yet their heart failure hospitalization rate was at least one and a half times higher than pharma phase three trials. KCCQ was way lower, like 30 points lower. So there are these patients out there that are really sick, and they're the ones that I think are where their life, their sort of quality of life, their outcomes are being driven by the HEFTEF. And that's what we found in this trial. Very nice. Well, listeners, let's turn now to our editorialist, Dr. Evangelos Michalikas. And Evangelos, two questions. How do we put the results of this sub-study really in the context of the main trial? And then secondly, do you have any, with your expertise in endothelial function and understanding the mechanisms of pulmonary hypertension, can you describe what you think might be operative as a mechanism here and why Sanjeev observed these positive results in some patients? Thank you. So the first point is that I have to also repeat that it was a remarkable achievement to do all this right heart catheterization on a treadmill in the cath lab. It's a very complex procedure and it is, they have to be congratulated, the authors, for actually doing this. There is no question that, like uh, Sanjeev said, ongoing trials or future trials will need to, to include the hemodynamics in the trials before and after the procedure. So another important thing is that the authors brought up this, they called it latent pulmonary hypertension. We could call it latent pulmonary hypertension or probably early pulmonary hypertension. 
as an entity. Now, that entity, it's newer in the heart failure field. It's not that old in the PAH, the pulmonary arterial hypertension field, since it used to be in the guidelines for this disease that exercise pulmonary hypertension was a diagnostic criterion for that. Because the idea is that exercise pulmonary hypertension reflects early pulmonary hypertension. So you needed to intervene with therapies early. Now, I'm not sure that this is a fact, but it is very likely that these patients in Sanjeev's trial that had the early, that had the sort of enhanced response with exercise did have at least endothelial dysfunction in the pulmonary arteries, not only because this population has a number of endothelial risk factors, diabetes, smoking, you know, you name it. But also there are newer problems like uh, SNPs, polymorphisms and mutations that we recognize more into the pulmonary arterial hypertension field to be more unique to the pulmonary circulation. But the reason I say that is that The reason that you dilate with exercise is mostly because of your pulmonary artery endothelial cells secreting vasodilatory factors and also allowing previously closed capillaries to open up with increased flow. However, the problem is that if you have pulmonary artery endothelial cells in vitro and you expose them to high flow, like in this case, you can actually change their identity turn them into cells that are not endothelial cells anymore, are proliferative, pro-inflammatory, and they can actually cause structural pulmonary circulation damage. Also, there are animal models and people working in PAH and ASD where they've shown that if you have, if you give an endothelial toxin in animals, and then you do an autocaval shunt, then you get really severe pulmonary hypertension with structural disease that is not even reversible if you remove the shunt. So from this trial, the conclusion that patients with pulmonary hypertension should not get the device is very clear, and probably the ones with exercise pulmonary hypertension. My theoretical concern is for those that don't have exercise pulmonary hypertension or those that do have it, Could they get worse after a number of years and have structural pulmonary vascular disease? And unfortunately, we didn't have a follow-up right heart catheterization to prove that, whether this is right or wrong, which I think is the most important thing to do in the future. So mimic the protocol for this trial from now on, but also add a follow-up right heart catheterization perhaps not just in a year, but longer. In other words, enough time to allow the structural pulmonary modeling get established, but also affect the right ventricle. These things don't, so maybe in a few years. It's a very demanding thing for these protocols, but I think that's what needs to be done before we say this device can actually be beneficial for those patients or for some patients or not hurt others. Very nice. And so a great segue, Evangelos, into what we think the next studies may need to be performed in this particular sphere of research. So Sanjeev, in just 30 seconds, could you share your thoughts first and 
then we'll circulate back to Justin and then finish up with Evangelos. Sanjeev? Yeah, I think the key thing is to do a confirmatory trial. And that's what we're aiming for, is to do a confirmatory randomized sham controlled trial, but focus in on these patients with an exercise peak PVR of less than 1.75 around there. And I think that'll help answer the question. You know, the QPQS we get with this device is 1.2 to 1.3. So I don't think it's a high flow. And we actually have open label studies where we've gone out to three years with repeat invasive hemodynamic testing, echocardiograms, and we've had patients who've been implanted for seven years. We're not seeing, at least at that point, any sort of worsening of pulmonary vascular disease or RV function or, or anything like that. And so it remains to be seen. The last thing I'll say, which I think is provocative in the field of HEFPEF, all pulmonary vasodilator drugs have failed. And you know, though we only measure pulmonary vascular resistance at rest. And what we saw in this trial is that some patients have a high PVR and it comes down. Some people have a PVR that stays low and, you know, and is low and stays low. Some people have a low PVR and it goes up. You know? So I think what we need to think about in the field of pH HFPEF is more exercise phenotyping to determine what's the dynamic exercise PVR. And maybe those with exercise elevation of pulmonary vascular resistance are the ones that respond to pulmonary vasodilators. So that's another thing that I think we can think about taking away from this trial. Thank you, Sanjeev. Justin. Yeah, so, so my thoughts are mimicking Sanjeev's, but one of the things that we desperately need is a ways in which we can non-invasively assess the, the exercise PVR so that we can think about the large-scale interventions that might come down the road if interventions such as this work well, because the non-invasive scans will really help us look at broader populations, those are, that don't make it into trials, and those are, that aren't traditionally in our studies of, of HFPEP. So I, I think that's another area where we can really grow the field and, and grow our knowledge. Very nice. And Evangelos? So yes, of course, like everybody said, we need trials that will have a follow-up right heart catheterization, at least at rest, if not both like the investigators did. But because the big question is, are these patients having an earlier stage pulmonary hypertension or not? These patients that the authors called latent pulmonary hypertension, we need to phenotype more their endothelial cells or their disease. And in the absence of biopsies, the only way we could do that is perhaps with molecular imaging, or at least in some small populations, or with analyzing pulmonary artery endothelial cells in the blood and their molecular phenotype to see if they are a distinct group, which I suspect they may be. So further phenotyping of this exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension in this population will be important as well. Thank you. Well, listeners, we've had a great discussion today from Dr. Sanjeev Shaw from Northwestern University in Chicago, our editorialist, Dr. Evangelos Michalikas from Edmonton, Alberta, and our own associate editor, Dr. Justin Ezekowitz from Edmonton who brought us this study demonstrating that in patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction or heart failure and mildly reduced ejection fraction, the presence of pulmonary vascular disease uncovered by invasive hemodynamic exercise testing identifies patients who may worsen with atrial shunt therapy, whereas those without pulmonary vascular disease may, at least in the short term, benefit. And of course, as Evangelos has pointed out, the long-term findings really warrant further study. 
Well, listeners, on behalf of Carolyn and myself, we want to wish you a great week, and we will catch you next week on The Run. This program is copyright of the American Heart Association 2022. The opinions expressed by speakers in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the editors or of the American Heart Association. For more, please visit ahajournals.org.